Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Today, we're more distributed and more digitally connected than ever before. Digital communications are now the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smarsh, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smarsh enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business-critical signals in more than 80 digital communications channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smarsh portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smarsh serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. It was a terrible, egregious, awful sentence, but it also gave me a degree of infamy and a degree of publicity and being public face of the liable prosecutions, if you like, globally. People remember who I am and that's helped me. Today's guest was the first person in the world to be jailed for rigging the London Interbank Offered Rate, a benchmark that helped to determine interest rates or mortgages and sizeable corporate loans. He's also one of the only bankers to be sent to prison after the financial crisis. Tom Hayes is a former UBS and Citigroup trader who spent half of his 11-year sentence in prison. His release in early 2021 came after the four other former traders convicted in the libel manipulation scandal had completed their prison terms. Eight others embroiled in the scandal were acquitted without charge. He had unwittingly made it easy for prosecutors to earmark him for harsher treatment by first cooperating with the UK's serious fraud office providing them with hours of incriminating interviews before switching tack and deciding to fight his case. The UK criminal courts did not look kindly upon that move. In 2017, lawyers for Hayes submitted his case to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which is an independent body responsible for investigating suspected miscarriages of justice, in a bid to have his conviction quashed. His legal team have long claimed that his autism diagnosis ahead of his 2015 trial was not given due consideration in court, and has argued that the prosecution used witnesses who were not experts and held back important evidence from the defence. The CCRC has had the option to refer Hayes' case to the Court of Appeal if it decides there's a real possibility that his original conviction could be quashed by the court. In late 2021, however, it decided to provisionally reject his efforts to appeal his case. Hayes and his legal team have since had the opportunity to push back on that decision, and that pushback has become more pronounced since last year when a US court dismissed its criminal indictment against Hayes. In November, the CCRC took the unusual step of inviting Hayes' legal team to give their views on whether the US court decision should prompt his conviction to be overturned, which suggests it is reconsidering its earlier position, and that Hayes' six-year-long fight to clear his name now looks set to be nearing an end. In this episode, we discuss his ongoing efforts to clear his name, how he is moving on both personally and professionally from a lost decade, and what today's financial services executives can learn from his story. 
Hi, Tom. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hello. So, Tom, let's start with an update on the CCRC's review of your case. What's expected and by when? Well, my legal team and I were really shocked that the CCRC had provisionally rejected the grounds on which we had originally applied, which were numerous. It was a complete bolt from the blue. At that point, I had an option to contest their provisional finding or just accept it. And that obviously involved trying to find further funding, which was difficult in light of the vast amount of money that's been spent in the last 10 years on legal fees. Also, some of my family were not keen on me carrying on on the basis of the impact on my emotional and mental health. But I wasn't going to let it go. I can't let it go. And I managed, by God's grace, to find the funding somehow and to look again at the CCRC's response, my original application. And fortunately, by pure coincidence, several things happened that were very advantageous to the case. And they were predominantly the US ruling in January of last year that the theory of law employed by the prosecution to prosecute was flawed. And so it was a seismic ruling in so far that it was a complete analogous situation between the UK and the US. It eventually led to the dismissal of my own charges in the US. And obviously, my own charges were based on the same evidence, the same facts and the same case and law. And in the light of this ruling, the theory of law in my case no longer was applicable and it wasn't a criminal offence. That ruling is consistent with the rulings in France and Germany on the same matter, where courts have also looked at them in relation to extradition requests from the UK. It was an intellectually courageous decision from the US court because they knew in so making that decision that there would be multiple people who pled guilty in the US who were going to have their convictions overturned because it would no longer be a crime. And they would also be probably aware that it was going completely at odds with UK court decisions. I've been told by leading KCs or QCs, whatever you'd like to call them these days, that there's never been a more divergent approach to fraud law or indeed any law between the two jurisdictions. So that all transpired during the course of us contesting the original decision of the CCRC. Subsequent to that, the CCRC asked for further representations specific to the point relating to the legal rulings in the United States which we have made. And the last communication I had with the CCRC was at the beginning of this year. And we have to wait till March the 13th. The committee of three will meet again, I presume, to make the final decision in my case. The next decision from the CCRC will be their final decision. And the only way I can contest that decision at that point, should it not go in my favour, is either through a judicial review or through an application to Europe on various different legal certainty grounds, but judicial review probably would be the first course of redress. But the CCRC application has been with them for more than six years now. I think in terms of just a continuous investigation with no decision being made, I think probably mine is the longest one they've ever looked at. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's taken so long? It's a tough decision for the CCRC. My case, very public, very political, Given that I've had a lot of time in front of the Court of Appeal, I think for them to send it back and to say, we actually think that you need to look at this again, it takes a lot of courage. The previous Lord Chief Justice, Lord Thomas, criticised the CCRC at one point for referring too many cases. They're in an invidious position because they can't be seen to be referring vexatious appeals. 
But one of the other biggest barriers for me personally is the fact that the weight placed upon the false confessions I made in the course of 82 hours of interviews is very heavy. And there's always that fallback for them that, oh, well, he admitted everything in interview, which, of course, actually I didn't. But that is the go-to excuse for doing nothing. Okay. And that's why it's been problematic for me. You were cooperating and then you decided not to. Can you briefly explain why you made that decision? Well, I didn't start out deciding I wanted to be a cooperator. I was arrested by the serious fraud office. And actually, I was quite calm at that point. I thought it was a big mistake. I thought it could be explained away. I thought it was a mix-up. I thought that people didn't understand fully the facts and the nature of how libel worked. But... It was when the Attorney General at the time, Eric Holder, gave a live press conference charging me in front of the world's press that I basically had a breakdown. My US lawyers were telling me I was looking at like 100 years in prison. And at that point, my only focus was avoiding extradition. And my lawyers did the right thing. I instructed them. I said, I need to avoid extradition at all costs. And they viewed this as the most advantageous and sure way for me to have that outcome. But as I was going through that interview process, I was seeing the documents. And this is just confirming to me what I was saying, that I haven't done anything wrong, particularly when I had emails from my managers telling me to do stuff. And I just was getting more and more angry. And I almost dropped out of the process. And I was becoming really uncomfortable with the idea that this cooperation process would have involved me giving evidence against my co-defendants. I hadn't done anything wrong either. But I was just mainly very angry. My ex-wife said to me, we were in the kitchen. She said, it's got to change, Tom. She said, either you've got to come to terms with this or you've got to fight it. She said, but I can't live with you being this angry. We will get divorced. And that's when I went and sought a second opinion. So I went to meet Charles Sherrard QC and he looked at the documents and he said, Tom, you don't have to plead guilty to this. And he gave me the confidence that I should reassess my decision. And then once I'd made that decision, I felt liberated because that for me was the moment where I started to be more in charge of what was going on in my life. And obviously I had the difficulty of having to explain away my interviews because you can see how that looks in front of the jury. Oh, so you're saying you lied in your interviews, but you're saying you're not dishonest. And you're like, yeah, I'm saying I'm not dishonest, but I'm a liar. So it was a really very difficult position for me to be in. I can imagine. And just to summarise, for those that might not be familiar, the argument at the centre of your defence is that you were following established industry practice and the prosecution sought to frame that as criminal behaviour that broke a rule that didn't exist. That's essentially what you've been saying. Well, we tried to have the case kicked out before it got to trial. We were tried under common law conspiracy to defraud, which is a very nebulous offence that the Law Society wanted to have repealed in 2010. But there has to be an unlawful means as part of that. And the unlawful means was a fraudulent misrepresentation. And because the rates that we submitted weren't numerically false, they were true, or they certainly couldn't prove that they were false. And in fact, they didn't even allege they were false because they said it doesn't matter if the rate didn't change or if the rate was a rate you could borrow at. They had to find another fraudulent misrepresentation. And that was a deliberate disregard of the rules. And the rule was an implied rule, implied by my trial judge and later the court of appeal in 2015 to say you couldn't consider your commercial interests. And that rule is the rule that's not recognised anywhere else around the world. Every court that's looked at that, be it in France or in Germany or now latterly the United States, have said, well, it wasn't against the rules. 
And as the Second Circuit said, it was inherently unfair, the system. So that was the case in law that was against me. So then the only issue that was really left for the jury was some sort of moral judgment, effectively, on my honesty or lack thereof. And what was taken out of the jury's consideration, which forms part of my current appeal, is the jury were never asked to consider whether I was actually guilty of fraudulent misrepresentation in that I deliberately disregarded the rules. So if there was a trial now, the jury would have to be sure that before they even considered honesty, I deliberately disregarded the rules. And to do that, they would have to be sure of whether the rule existed, what my knowledge of the rule was, and whether I deliberately disregarded it. And that's obviously a big part of my application to the CCRC. So you've mentioned that the CCRC is meeting next for a final time on March 13th. When do you expect their decision to be made public? And what are your planned next steps in relation to your case when that decision is public? Well, they have to redraft the decision document. I mean, whatever their decision, because we've made fresh representations that need to be addressed, either positively or negatively, in either way. And also we made representations about why we felt their original decision was wrong. So all of those things would need to be addressed in the decision document, even if they're going to say no to me. So that redrafting of the decision document last time took in the region of three months. I'm hoping that it'll be quicker this time. So six to eight weeks after that meeting, potentially I might get a final decision. In terms of what happens next, it very much depends on what the decision is, because if the decision is positive, then our next step is to the appeal at the Court of Appeal. Typically, CCRC referrals have a very high probability of success, like 80 to 90% probability of success. But then I've always felt my case has been quite political, so I can't rely on the numbers right now. I am confident that they are actually going to refer me. In terms of my plans, if they don't refer me, I can't say because I need to see in more detail exactly why they haven't and how we can challenge that decision further. But we won't be able to challenge the decision to them anymore because this is a final decision this time. It would have to be via other means, primarily a judicial review, which would only occur in the circumstances where the final decision was to reject me. And the beauty of a judicial review contesting that decision, of course, is you can take it all the way up to the Supreme Court. It's a civil process, not a criminal process. In the criminal process, the only way you can get in front of the Supreme Court is if the Court of Appeal themselves certifies a question of law of public importance that should be heard by the Supreme Court. And the refusal to make that certification in previous Court of Appeal hearings in relation to the case was the reason it was never heard at the Supreme Court level. So we haven't been able to actually argue it in front of the highest court in the country. And frankly, I don't think the Court of Appeal had all the evidence in front of them when they made that decision in 2015. And they definitely didn't have the volume of evidence that the American court ruling considered when they made their decision. And I think it really needs to be reheard for the sake of everybody who's been prosecuted in this country. Okay. And could you tell us more about your separate bid together with a group of traders to directly apply to the Court of Appeal to have your case reassessed, which is a separate course of action to the CCRC action? Who were the other traders? When did you decide to come together to pursue a group action? And what are the next steps there? Yeah, I think one of the mistakes that we made as a group of traders was when all this kicked off, we were all told by lawyers we shouldn't speak to anyone. Reality is we never collectively got together and worked as a team. Looking back at it, it was a mistake for us to all be siloed away working individually instead of collectively looking at the best way tactically we could do things because it's a resource-heavy process. So we got together. In the summer of last year, we've all got, in our own ways, ongoing legal things attached to this case. So Philippe Moriesef right now is in France. He was convicted in absentia in the UK. 
who's being pursued by the Serious Fraud Office for a process of crime order. So he had that going on. Carlo Palumbo, a rival defendant, was basically being pursued for prosecution costs, but he was also being pursued by the FCA. He wanted to ban him for life based on his conviction, notwithstanding the fact that they only issued him with a written warning in the first instance prior to him facing all these criminal shenanigans. So we obviously sought some legal opinion from people who felt that there was a route back to a tribunal that could hear the argument without going through the CCRC. And we all effectively have the same issue, that the case in law, in our mind, is wrong. And we shouldn't have been criminally prosecuted. At the most, this was a regulatory matter. So we decided that we would like pull together resources, pull together expertise, and find a group of people who can challenge the case in another way. And for those guys, they don't want to just ride on the coattails of me with the CCRC. I think it's really important for your own mental health to feel like you're actually fighting this rather than just relying on someone else you have no control over, you know, because none of those guys have any direct control over my CCRC application or arguments we may or may not make. And this is a way of us having another iron in the fire and another way to actually get it reheard at the highest level. There's a very strong feeling from the guys who are representing us that this should never have been a criminal matter. There's a real feeling that they're working on a miscarriage of justice for multiple people. And I don't necessarily blame the Court of Appeal for its earlier rulings. I just think that key facts, evidence, etc., etc., was not presented to them in the way it should have been, partly because people have changed their evidence. So it's basically a semi-collaborative effort. But the focus is very much on what the CCRC decides. I mean, the most expeditious way for me to resolve this problem is through a referral to the CCRC. And if we had an argument on the case in law, then I'm not familiar with all the legal processes, but I'm pretty sure that the other traders could join that process as interested parties, because obviously they have very strong stake in all of this as well, having been prosecuted under that same case in law. I can't say too much about the mechanisms the group are hoping to use to get this in front of the court again should the CCRC not refer me. But we have a number of options. What we really need more than anything, either via the CCRC, either via the group, is an audience in front of a tribunal that has the power to rehear the case in law because we can shout and scream about it as much as we want, but until we get in front of a tribunal, it's irrelevant. And so the first challenge is to get in front of the courts. And the CCRC is the first conduit to that, but there are other conduits. So if I was to be unsuccessful with the CCRC, then not only could I judicially review the CCRC, but we can continue with our original plans in the group action to get the case back in front of the relevant tribunal outside of the CCRC process, because the Court of Appeal will rehear decisions that even if it's had a judgment and a ruling in exceptional circumstances, and we would argue that this is one of those cases. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any other direct applications or legal action plan to clear your name? No, I've got enough going on already. I mean, one thing I'm surprised about is how we've managed to keep this issue and our convictions in the news for as long as we've managed to. Because let's face it, no one's really interested in libel, the general population as an interest rate. They don't care. I was convicted in 2015. My arrest was in 2012. These things now are a decade old, more than a decade. I've lost a decade of my life plus. So the fact that we're still able to engage with mainstream media, I'm very, very grateful every day that we're able to keep shining a light on, on what's happened. 
But in terms of additional things that we can do, we're doing just about as much as we can do right now. Okay. And you've recently called on the UK government, or specifically the Attorney General Victoria Prentice, to replace the serious fraud office who pursued your conviction. How would you like to see the SFO replaced? Look, there is a history that the SFO have basically trying to criminalise things that are otherwise legal. Conspiracy to defraud for me is a very nebulous offence. And I don't understand why the Serious Fraud Office is so obsessed about bringing criminal cases for what is lawful business practice. And how you fix a Serious Fraud Office, I don't know. But my point being is that that's a bigger issue than any regulatory reform that needs to be looked at right now. Mm -hmm. What other changes to regulators would you like to see off the back of your case? Well, on a regulatory basis... This case has been really treated so differently in different jurisdictions. So very early on, the Competition Bureau in Canada said this isn't a criminal matter. You've got the Japanese who are like on a regulatory basis, nothing to see, don't really care. They know that it wasn't regulated and they know there weren't any rules. You've got the Bank of England saying to the BBC it wasn't regulated. And you've got the Employment Court in Germany forcing Deutsche Bank to reinstate people it's fired. And I guess the point is, it's just about consistency. And I feel that that desire to try and make someone pay for the financial crisis of 2008 was so prevalent and so powerful in 2012 and 2011 when all that stuff was going on. And you couldn't escape from the fact that it became very politicised. And that's one of my biggest annoyances about my case, because no one can say that it wasn't political. They were given blockbuster funding and basically told to go and put some bankers in prison. But no one stepped back and said, well, actually, you know, how does this thing actually work? And then when you're in an interview situation with these people and you say, well, actually, there were never any false rates submitted, they suddenly look at you like, well, that doesn't fit our version of events. So we want a different version of events. And so I think the key thing is to actually do the due diligence, do the background, research what the system was, how it worked, what rules did or didn't exist, then make the decisions. Don't just immediately get swept along. There was no consideration of the finer points of the case. And in reality, the banks bear a large responsibility for that because their own legal and compliance teams just decided to frame all of us guys to protect the senior managers, all of whom knew everything that was going on. But one thing I would say is that in relation to what the traders did at the banks, no one should be prosecuted. Not us, not the managers. We didn't commit to criminal offence, but neither did they. Your comments about the banks themselves prompts my next question, because we're speaking not long after the government's proposal to review the senior managers and certification regime, which were a set of rules introduced after the crisis in 2016, initially specifically targeted at banks. They've since been broadened out and their intention was to hold bank bosses more accountable for their behaviour. What aspects of that regime would you change if you could? Well, for a start, they might consider using it because they haven't used it. If you have something you don't use, there's no point in having it. So I just think they need to use it more than they use it. I think that there needs to be a less cosy relationship between the regulator and the people they're regulating, where third-party law firms do the investigations, give the investigations to the regulators, sit down, decide who's going to pay what in terms of finance, in terms of punishment, etc., etc. No one went into the banks with a warrant to get the evidence in my case or in any of the libel cases. They relied entirely on a chain of custody of evidence that came from the US to the CFTC, to the Department of Justice, to the SFO. 
But who went in and actually questioned people under caution? Who went in and issued warrants to actually get the evidence and conduct an impartial investigation? At the end of the day, you're entirely reliant on the fox basically conducting an investigation inside the hen house. How much do you think the city has changed since you worked in it? One thing is for sure there's going to be another scandal and for sure somebody is going to be thrown under the bus. And it's something that's an industry practice. They'll find somebody to blame. And most people will be sitting there at their desk thinking, that poor bastard Tom Hayes. But it's like being struck by lightning. It's not going to happen to me. That's what I'd be sitting there thinking. And so the reality is, am I a deterrent? I don't really think so, because people just look at me as unlucky. What lessons would you like the financial services sector to learn from your story? Look, at the end of the day, the legal and compliance departments inside banks, I think can be too quick to rush to judgment without fully understanding what happened. Take as a case in point, all of the banks who pled guilty to fraud in the United States, the Second Circuit's just said, well, actually, it wasn't a false number that was presented. So they've effectively pled guilty to fraud in the US that's no longer a fraud. Why didn't they stop and actually investigate and have a think about it before they just automatically decided that it was terrible? I feel like there's a lot of pressure put on legal and compliance departments inside banks not to go further up the chain. There's a lot of pressure for them not to look at more senior people. Try not to just be looking at the most obvious person, the most obvious thing, because quite often the most obvious person, the most obvious thing isn't the right answer. I was the most obvious person. I was the most obvious thing. But that wasn't the whole story. It wasn't the right answer. And the difficulty is that you will be in a situation where you're having to go further up the train and make things more awkward for your employer, which by definition will make things more awkward for you. But the other thing is try to understand the subject matter. And you're, this is really difficult because you're in an area where you're maybe not an expert. And that takes a lot of time to then try and understand it properly before you go head first in. What advice would you have for finance workers who find themselves under regulatory investigation? Well, my understanding is that you'll find yourself under investigation internally inside the bank first before you get to a regulatory stage. And then the bank will self-report to be extremely cooperative. So I think at that point, for me personally, when the bank started investigating me, my ex-wife implored me to get my own lawyer in the course of this investigation. But I was being told that I had nothing to worry about. The CEO of City Japan, Brian McCaffin, told me I had nothing to worry about. I was told I wasn't even going to lose my job. This was a box ticking exercise. I never got my own lawyer. Really bad idea. I should have got my own lawyer. You should have your own lawyer, not a lawyer given to you by the bank, because that lawyer doesn't represent you. They represent the bank. In terms of a piece of paper, they might say they represent you, but the bank's paying them. So get your own lawyer, pay for your own lawyer. Make contemporaneous notes of everything that's said to you and everything that you say, because actually they carry a lot of weight of evidence if you ever come to need them. Don't just assume everything's going to be okay. I was told it was a thousand to one I was even going to lose my job. Not only did I lose my job, but then all this happened to me. Don't be misled by the fact you're not suspended from your position, because in reality, when that investigation started at City into me, given what's happened to me subsequently, it's axiomatically so serious. I shouldn't have been trading. I should have immediately been suspended from my position of employment pending this investigation. So why wasn't I suspended? Well, had I been suspended, suddenly the gravity of the situation would have been very different. I would have had my own lawyer. My own lawyer would have turned around and said, well, hang on a minute. All your managers knew about everything you're doing. You're not doing anything wrong. And instead, I just listened to what I was being told. 
to say by bosses, which was just passing information. And ironically, I was fired by the very guy who knew exactly what I was doing. So get your own lawyer. Don't be blasé and complacent. I didn't think that anything was going to happen. I listened to the assurances of people who were not trying to protect me, but trying to make sure that I didn't say anything about them. And just be wary of the fact that if there's an investigation going on internally, don't think that that's all it's ever going to be. Because I thought it was an internal investigation that was going to lead nowhere. And not only did it lead to my dismissal, it led eventually to my imprisonment. Now, when someone tells you that will never happen, you're being crazy, that's the worst case scenario, that would never happen, you're being paranoid, be paranoid. Because if you're not, then things can spiral out of control really quickly. Mm-hmm. You've paid a high personal cost for your conviction. You have previously been quite open about your suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. You've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Your legal fees are around about 1.5 million and counting. And your fight continues. Yeah, I mean, the time you spend in prison is not easy. And so from a very selfish personal point of view is that you go through a very, very difficult experience which is hugely traumatic, hugely stressful, surrounded by violence, surrounded by drugs, surrounded by generally people you wouldn't really want to be surrounded by. And that has a really deleterious effect on your mental health, on your physical health. My MS progressed a lot faster as a result of my time in prison. Your access to healthcare is severely diminished. And I still wake up probably five mornings out of seven feeling absolutely petrified. And I couldn't tell you why I feel petrified. I couldn't tell you what it is that's worrying me. But I know that I'm worried. And I just, I have to start the day in order to get myself out of that feeling of just feeling very insecure and scared. And I also used to have really terrible night terrors in prison, which I've debated somewhat. But I have real anxiety. And then you have to look at the impact, not just on me, but on my family. My son was really badly affected by me just being taken away and has bad separation anxiety now. My mother and my father and my brothers and sisters, this is something that impacts everybody in your life. My mother now has anxiety problems too as a result of what happened to me. And you find yourself, if a, a letter comes through the door, you just get palpitations. You're like, what's that about? Who's that now? Why are they are going to be after me? And then you discover it's something telling you that you can get a pizza for half price. But the anxiety you feel when someone comes to the door and you don't recognise and you think, who's that? Have they come to arrest me? There's all those things that just still play very much into your day-to-day life now, even though supposedly the whole thing's over. And obviously missing my son growing up was hugely painful. The length of the sentence as well was so long, five and a half years. There were people in prison who would rape someone in a park who got lower sentences than me, who killed Mm. somebody lower sentences than me and when you make that comparison where I'm in a fraud with no victims and no money doing something that's industry practice that's not even criminal anywhere else in the world then how did I end up with that sentence it was so damaging and pernicious to not just me and my mental health and my physical health but lots of people who were close to me also how do you move on personally from something like this? Because obviously the majority of our conversation has been about your legal efforts to clear your name. But personally, how do you move on? Day by day, I think I have massive anxiety in terms of the future because people say to me, oh, you shouldn't worry about this. You shouldn't worry about that. You shouldn't worry about the other. But 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I was told not to worry about all these different things. And then not only did the worst case happen, but worse than the worst case happened. 
And then when you have that sort of thing where you're overwhelmed by a tsunami of events that you could never have predicted, that has a lasting impact. I tend to find that when unexpected things happen, I get thrown out to a degree which I would never have done previously, even just small things, because you just panic. You're thinking the worst case is going to happen. And that's a legacy of, sort of post-traumatic stress disorder. And for that reason, I try where I can to avoid thinking about things that are more than 24 hours in the future. And when I was in prison, every day I'd get up and my goal was to get to the end of the day. That's how I lived my life in prison. And I still am sort of living my life a little bit like that now. But obviously my biggest goal when I came out was to rebuild my relationship with my son because the poor little kid got to know his dad in a prison visits room and they're not nice places. Mm. So we've done some really good fun things since we came out. We went to the final of the European Football Championships in 2021, which was an amazing experience. We were really lucky to get tickets for that. I can't travel abroad, but I've taken him fishing in the Scottish Highlands. I've taken him surfing in Cornwall, just doing all the little things that everybody as a parent wants to do with their kids. And I missed out on doing those. It's been a big burden for him as well. He's got to get to know me. He was nervous coming to see me for the first time and staying away from his mum. So in terms of how I'm moving on, I think the most important thing is to just redevelop my relationship with my family and my son. And as regards everything else, it's too stressful and difficult for me to contemplate in a lot of respects. Okay. And you say you can't travel abroad. And actually, that's an important point to flag up that even though you are out of prison, you are out of prison on license. So you're not fully free, as it were. Is there anything you can say about what the terms of your license are? I've got standard license conditions. So I have to have a regular address. I have to tell my probation officer if I'm going away. I have to inform her of any change of employment. You're still not free. And I still am subject to recall. I've got three and a half more years of my license to go and that I could be recalled to prison, which is something that terrifies me. I don't know why it terrifies me because I've not done anything that would trigger a recall. But my previous experience of not having done anything wrong necessarily, but you still getting sent to prison just makes it's just another like form of anxiety upon anxiety you know i have to be very cautious about who i associate with because i'm still friends with a lot of people who i met in prison and it's so easy to get pulled into some sort of like alleged conspiracy based on a meeting or a phone call or something you've spoken publicly previously about finding faith in prison has that helped you move on personally from this yeah, these people who speak to me now would probably say that I'm not as polemic as they might think I might be. And I know how angry I was when I was sentenced and when I was put in prison. And I was a very angry, bitter man. And I was angry at the people who I shouldn't have been angry with. I was angry at my ex-wife. I was angry at my parents. I was angry at anyone and everyone who loved me and cared for me. And I was hitting out at anyone and everyone because of that anger. And I had to find a way of dealing with that anger. And the church really helped me in finding a solution to that. Okay. And how do you move on professionally from something like this? Because before this scandal unraveled, you were arguably at the top of your game, a top performing trader at UBS and then briefly at Citigroup. What are your next steps professionally? Well, that's, and it is a sort of thinking more than 24 hours in advance thing. I don't tend to think too much about it because there's so many uncertainties in relation to fighting my criminal conviction and depending on the outcome of those steps that I'm taking what's available for me to be able to do or not do are very very different. You have been doing some work with a private investigation firm haven't you? Not really involved though, with them anymore particularly. 
Okay. But is that an avenue of work that you would consider? And would you consider going back into financial services? I would love to, but not with a bank. But at the moment, I don't know. If you had to draw a diagram of all the different things that could happen and the routes that could be taken and the decisions that could be made, I don't know where I'm going to end up. And it's a very scary situation for me. One thing I would say is once I have a conclusion to all of this, I definitely think I should write a book because I think that it would be quite interesting and that probably some people might buy it. And I'm actually not a bad writer, so I wouldn't want a ghostwriter because I think when I'm talking about some of the emotion, some of the raw feelings and the, the reliving some of the stuff, I think it would be best coming from my own mouth. And that would be a memoir, would it? I'd like it to cover pretty much everything that's happened in the last 15 years. I, I happen to think a lot of what happened to me is really quite boring, but people are interested in it. But I think people are also interested in the human story. I can talk for hours with different anecdotes about all the things that happened to me in prison. Some of them are funny, some of them are tragic, some of them are horrific. But people are fascinated by that. It was a terrible, egregious, awful sentence. But it also gave me a degree of infamy and a degree of publicity and being public face of the libel prosecutions, if you like, globally. People remember who I am and that's helped me. But I wasn't your typical city-wide boy. I wasn't snorting cocaine and out of strip clubs and things like that. That wasn't me. So in that respect, it's less, how can I put it, stereotypical of people's image of what a trader might be doing in their spare time. I was really boring. I just got back and had a bath and drank some orange juice every night. Well, even so, it's still something for potential publishers out there to bear in mind, get in touch with you on. Well, I suppose some people might say that might be a difficult process. It might be easier to just leave it all behind and forget it happened. But I think it would be quite cathartic. I kept a lot of prison diaries. Well, I look forward to reading it as and when it comes out. And hopefully we can get you back on following the rules once the CCRC decision is public and the group action is in train as well. But in the meantime, thank you very much for your time today. No worries. Thank you. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.